to the podcast. Tonight we're talking about character profiles in GMC. This is day three of our um, story building the novella workshop thing. And we're going to talk about why character profiles are so important and really, really integral to my process as a writer. Um, um, first, we're going to talk about why it's important to our process um, and why it became so important to my process. I don't know how Jilly came to it, but for me, um, when I when I wrote strictly original fiction, um, a lot of times uh, my my characters were very transitory. I didn't write a lot of series work. I wrote this once. And then I was done. So they would have very small character bios, depending on what they did in the story and what was necessary for their for their story to take place. And when I'm writing erotica, I don't need much of a character profile at all, to be honest. I mean, when when you're writing a fuck book, you don't need a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's really important to know what you're writing going into it when you're creating. Um, character profiles uh but what i discovered as i moved into serial work um and i tried to create um you know large series um is that i needed bigger profiles because these characters would be appearing over and over and over again and i needed to know and to keep consistent what they are and what they were across different projects this is especially important um I think if you're going to be using characters over and over again, like I do Matthew Shepard in um, Stargate, or like I do Randolph Rampart recently, um, or um, Thaddeus Banner in uh, these characters, because Hiro Ito, um, because I move them around, Ito, so, um, because I move them around so much into varying. Um, stories knowing their basis knowing their their foundation is super important i can shift them a little depending like in, a, in an upcoming project which you guys are going to get a bigger look at on ead um thaddeus banner's a sentinel and he's an alpha sentinel and um he uh chapter one's currently on ead you guys are going to get four or five chapters for for um, for ead this year uh and um that particular project, Thaddeus, is is not like anything I've ever done with him before. But he's still at his base, Thaddeus Banner. He's still married to Piper. They have a um, they um, they have a son named Jamie. Um, he's not a vassal of the House of Potter. He's an Alpha Sentinel, and he's a badass, and he's uh, very blunt, and um, he's not particularly paternal towards Harry. He sees Harry as a Sentinel. And as a child, second, and he expects a lot out of Harry. And it's the first time he's ever been treated this way by another Sentinel. Because in a lot of ways, he was coddled when he was in the Muggle world um, as a Sentinel. But he can't afford to be that um, um, treated that way in the magical world. And Thaddeus knows that. So being able to move my characters around to different projects, which I'm I've kind of become known for using the same OCs over and over again in different ways. One of the ways that I can do this is that I have character profiles. And when I get ready to start a new project and I'm gathering up my character list for what I'm going to do, like I did with all the world, I pick up 
character profiles. I move them into a new folder. Then I go in and I edit them to suit my needs. Like in all the world, Ragnarok only had one child. Whereas in Small Magic, he had four. So, rearranging these profiles to suit my needs for each story is easier because I have character profiles. When Jilly said, hey, can I borrow Tyr? I was like, yes, here's his profile. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have much of one because he's a new character. Um, and I really haven't developed him fully yet because he wasn't going to be on screen a lot. But I knew the basics about him. I knew where he was from, you know, who his parents were, what clan he belonged to in the Diverger, um, what his um, education was in, um, his preferred weapon. Um, just, you know, basic things I thought that I would need to know about him going into, um, all the world. So, you know, very important. Yeah, I think that I have, I had gotten really bad about, um, doing character profiles for my secondary characters outside of just a basic character list. Um, and, um, I, it, that resulted, that's how I got the five Alexes. Don't judge me. Um, you know, because I've got five different original characters named Alex, which is just some next level shenanigans, right? That I hadn't paid attention <laughs> to the fact that, you know, no, I don't want any more. <laughs> that's when you have to make an actual Excel spreadsheet to keep them all on. Right. I so mean, the, to be serious. No, it is. It's legit. You got to, you got to keep. No, I don't think there's any correlation between the two. Um, no, uh, the tear from from Stargate isn't an original character, but both names mean wolf, I think, or something like that. So I um I came to start when I first started writing when I was twelve. Um, I had noodled on the, st the first thing I wrote. I ha it had been playing with it in the back of my head forever, right? I didn't know anything about plotting. I had notes, you know, I, but I didn't think about plotting. I didn't do character profiles, but I feel like I knew these characters, right? Because I'd been daydreaming about this story for like forever. Fucking amnesia fic. Anyway, um, <laughs> yes, first serious thing I ever wrote was an amnesia fic. I can't even with myself. But the more I wrote the more I ran into this symptom of, for me, and this is how I came to, like, I've got to do character profiles, is I came to this problem of my characters feeling kind of flat because I was writing faster. I wasn't spending as much time daydreaming about one story, right? Once I started writing and getting it out of my head and having that experience, I wanted to go on to the next thing. Well, so I go on to the next thing or, you know, two or three projects down the road and I'm not spending months thinking about something, right? I get an idea in my head and I sit down and start to write. And what was happening is my character started to feel flat to me. Um, and so I felt like that part of that was that I wasn't fleshing them out enough. And I do think that a lot of times for me, this is where the flatness in the character comes from, is I don't know their quirks well enough. I haven't defined what their quirks are to give them interesting traits that would grab the reader to determine what their speech patterns are like. How immersed are they in pop culture? Do they like Marvel or DC better? Do they not even read comic books and never did as a kid? Um what are their bad habits? And we've talked about this before. If everybody thinks it's cute, it's not a bad habit. Can't a bad habit is something that people deal with because they love you, not because they actually think it's charming. 
Okay, just putting that out there. Um, but I needed to kind of understand, you know, how formal was their language? You know, what was the level of education? Um, how smart were they? Just all of these just, just, just things, you know, what food would they cut a bitch for? You know, they, I needed to know this stuff. So I started doing writing more stuff down and sometimes there's very strange stuff in my character bios that I've never seen I have seen some pretty exhaustive stuff before in uh, character bios the the big the big character bio and readsy I think if I'm remembering it correctly if I if it's the one I'm thinking of the readsy character profile is huge it is huge and some of the stuff I just leave blank because it doesn't serve my purposes to fill that kind of stuff out but all of the stuff that you might be able to draw on when you're drawing a character, if, you, if you've got it written down, you've already made that decision, it can give, help you give depth to a character as you're writing them in just subtle ways. Like, are they obsessed with chicken wings? You know, um, do they have an inappropriate sense of humor? Do they have, and how is it inappropriate? Are they sarcastic? Are they more slapstick? I mean, all of these things, if you've made those decisions in advance, you can really bring those things into the character in subtle ways that the audience will pick up on and it will give the character depth and they'll resonate better. Um, so, Now, the degree to which I work on this kind of information all depends upon how much that character is going to be in the story. So some characters, like I have really extensive character bio for Tony, but I do adapt it for certain projects because some projects um, I need I need to tweak his background a little bit. Like if I were writing him having known Tony Stark as a kid, I would have to tweak the background I've got for him. So character profiles. Um, for my main characters, I always do a lot more work. Uh, for my secondary characters, I'll at least do for all of the secondary characters what's in like this mini. And depending upon the fandom, because like if it's Harry Potter, I'm going to add, I mean, I went and figured out for Slytherin Black what kind of, ever, what everybody's wand was and what their boggart was and <laughs> whatever, dude. <laughs> judge me I, my character <laughs> profiles i have like i don't know 10 or 15 tabs it was i was trying to do my work in one note at that time slytherin black was the only major project i did in, in one note and um my character profiles are on a separate tab separate notebook and there's a tab and like there's like 15 tabs and each tab has at least four people on it so it was ridiculous. And I did all those profiles written down first. And not everything ever even made it into OneNote. It's just... See, Dark, you just... You don't make character profiles, but you know everybody's wand. You are never going to get out of that sin bin. I think what she's saying is, is she doesn't write down character profiles. But if you know everybody's one, then you're doing a character profile in your head. Now I'm really jealous of, of your sense of your memory. <laughs> I couldn't remember that anymore. Um, but 
but why I keep a profile is that it it provides consistency so that your character doesn't have blue eyes in one book and green eyes in another if this character shows up again. Right. And I've seen eye color change, hair color change, um, age changes, you know, and it tells me some this person hasn't written down anything about their character because it's just, it's just the characters all over the place. Um, <laughs> We're all looking at you, Jeff Davis. Right. <laughs> Now, for tertiary characters, tertiary characters either only appear in like one scene in a story. They're usually utilitarian. They're usually fulfilling a function rather than having a significant impact on the story. So they might only appear once or twice. They might even appear repeatedly, but in a way that they aren't identified by name. I don't really do character bios for tertiary characters. What I do like to do is keep a list of names, especially like if um, I'm going to have like a taxi driver or a bartender or a waiter or a waitress. Because um, I don't want, and this has happened, all these characters end up with the name John. Because they will. Or Alex. Because he's my placeholder. <sighs> or Alex. Or Alex. All of my OCs are named Alex. <laughs> um. No, John has always been my placeholder name since I was like 12. Literally since I was 12, he, that John has been my placeholder name. John Doe. And then she started writing SGA and it became a problem. <laughs> it became a huge problem. So somebody asked, how major does the character need to be casting? That's kind of up to you. Um, for me, usually if I usually cast all of my secondary characters, that's usually what I do. Um, I don't usually cast tertiary characters. I mean, to me, tertiary characters are there more for function than they are there for anything else. It's because you need the character in that, you know, you need a character, you, you need a doctor in the scene where you need a medical professional. So they're there functionally. They're not there because they add, add anything to the plot. So I don't tend to cast tertiary characters. I didn't start casting characters until I entered fandom. I never had any need for a picture uh, to, to, to create a character around until I entered fandom. So I actually consider that one of the bad habits fandom gave me. Not the only bad habit fandom gave me, to be perfectly honest, but the most um, intrusive into my process, absolutely. Um, I don't know. I think when I was younger and I was, before I started writing fan fiction, I think it was more of a, you know, I, I would visualize a character and I would think of them as being like, you know, having eyes like this dude and hair like this guy. And I didn't, I usually didn't go, okay, this character, because I wouldn't, even when I was, you know, in my teens, I was sensitive to the idea that I was, you know, writing a thinly veiled, you know, well-known rock star. I was sensitive to the, the to not do that, but so I would think, oh, he's got this guy's hair, and, and it kind of has got this guy's dis disposition, or his voice sounds like that, um, and it would help me build a picture in my own head of that character. But it wouldn't ever be anybody who is real, mm -hmm. um, if that makes sense. But it just helped me visualize them as try to picture traits that I would find agreeable. Um, 
but yeah, definitely in, in fandom, I started doing the whole casting thing, but it, part of it was because we all knew, right. With, with fandom, you all know who these canon characters, what they look like. Right. And when you bring in a, an OC into a significant role, it, it strike would strike me as strange to not know and be able to show the audience who's playing that character. So I had a reader ask me for a casting page and that's how it got started. And I'm not even sure which reader to blame and it would be blame. Um, and then we did a casting couch for Matthew Shepard and that, and that was all she wrote. Yeah. I will say though, when I, when I read, um, any, if I'm ever going to read anything anime, I, it, I need a, I need a real person to attach that picture to. So it's just something that helps me. Um, the few times I've read them is when somebody casts with real actors. Not that they have to. I'm not saying it's 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 because I'm not saying that's at all in any way mandatory. It just helps me, you know, because I I can't get there. The only thing worse than someone casting your character for you if you don't is someone ignoring your casting and casting them casting somebody else. I've had that happen to me more than once. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right, y'all. Put the ripper on a plane. But yeah, it happens. You know, so and it's just like, you know, okay, readers have a different version of this character in their head um than you do. Okay, fine. Um, but don't expect me to entertain it. And for the record, Hiro Itu, he's Japanese. And when he started drinking from the Bloodstone, he was in his 80s. So, even as a wizard, he's not going to appear 20, 25 years old. So, I need y'all to stop. Just saying, stop. Oh, Tear Warhide. Could be my new favorite OC. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, one of the things when you're deciding about characters, you have to make decide what who are your primary characters and how many you have. Um, and a little bit that is somewhat informed by the genre you're writing. As how many primary characters you have. If you're writing a romance, you have two or three. Because I mean, you might be writing a... And I say three because you might be writing a triad. But in a romance, your two, your romance pairing should be your main characters. Otherwise, you're not really writing a romance. You might have a romance subplot. But if you... If your main characters are not your romantic pairing, I would say that it's kind of hard to say that your main genre is romance. Um, so you need to decide how many main characters you got. Sometimes in there, there are some cases where you might have many main characters where you're doing like an ensemble thing, um, like a criminal minds case fit kind of thing where you, but I, I would still kind of challenge that you might want to try to narrow your focus to pick one or two or three people that you're going to focus that story through. Because if you really try to give six or seven people equal weight in the story, your narrative is going to be really diluted. Um, and it, well, it just, I would say is that an antagonist isn't a main character. No, 
and should never have that much weight in your narrative to even come close to that kind of um no your antagonist um kind of has a little bit of a separate i mean i guess i mean i guess you could say the antagonist might have a a lot it but it depends i guess on the kind of i mean if you're writing a um um, horror suspense and one of your POV characters is your, like, your killer. I, you could argue then in that case, your villain is, has, is a main character, but that's really unusual. That's, a, that's kind of a corner case. So we're talking about majority of things, right? Is that usually your antagonist is probably a secondary character. And, and their narrative burden is really, really small if they're given a POV at all. And that yeah. also depends on what kind of book you're writing. Um, if you're writing a suspense, your antagonist or your bad guy might be known to the reader long before it's known to the person who's the bad guy. Whereas in a mystery, um, it is your job as the writer to keep your reader guessing to the very last moment. So your villain or your antagonist would never have a POV in a mystery. Right. So what kind of story you're writing becomes important in these decisions. And that's why you need to know these kinds of things, you know, so that you can make informed decisions and make informed choices. And because I mostly write romance or I actually, you know, I say that I say you're my, my Right, mostly romance, and then we did that count one day, and like half the stories on my site are genfic. So I don't even know what the fuck I'm talking about anymore. Um, but they're either family focused from one or two characters' points of view, or they're romance. So they're you know whatever. Um, um, so you have to decide how many char main characters do you have, and main characters are the ones that are carrying your whole story right? They're going to be in, maybe not in every scene, because if you're, especially if your characters aren't in the same place, but the majority of your scenes have your main characters in them. A hundred percent of your scenes should have at least one of your main characters in them. You shouldn't have, I, this is just, this is some opinion, and a little bit depends upon, there are, again, there are always corner cases where it makes more sense to do whatever, but you should always have a main character in a scene. Otherwise, it means you've got a PO secondary character that's a POV character. And what character? And and what does that serve? If it serves your world building, I'm more likely to excuse it because that's the excuse I give myself. Yeah, <laughs> but like I said, there are there are cases where it makes actual sense for that particular story. But this is one of those cases, and like we talked before, it helps to understand the rules before you break them, so that you can break them deliberately where it serves you, as opposed to break them randomly. But generally, your POV characters should be your main characters, and you don't have a scene without a POV character in it. Therefore, every scene has a main character in it. And that's where you can get into problems with giving POVs to secondary characters. Um, this is also something you need to determine when you're in the planning stages. If you're a plotter and if you're a pantser, I don't, I don't even know fucking what you do. But you have to determine how many POVs your your story can maintain. And, in um, a, and what is reasonable. 
And in the novella, and so this is a lot about a novella. I would say for most people, if you don't know what you're doing and how to keep your narrative really solid, that you get one or two. One or two. If you don't have enough words in a novella to support three or four or five points of view, your narrative would be so diluted that there's nothing for the reader to latch on to. They don't know who the story's about anymore if you've got five points of view. Um, now, if you're writing a triad, I would then the say out. odds are you need to pick one character to write the whole story's point of view from because you don't really have enough words in a novella to write three points of view. What I would also say is that your genre is very important. Um, when it comes to a romance, you really need to keep your POV um, between your romantic relationship, whether that's two characters or three. And if you're writing a triad, you either have one POV or you have three. Mm -hmm. um, if you're writing a fantasy novel and it's spread out over a large geography, you could have five or six POVs, but that's fantasy and the average fantasy novel is between 150 and 200k and that is an entirely different ball game than the average 75k romance novel and then when you talk about the novella so like we talk about so let's say you are writing a triad okay and you're going to do a novella we, if you go with the idea that you get one or three points of view for a triad when you come down to the novella length generally it's probably a better idea to do one to tell the whole story from one person's point of view because you don't have enough words for three without making your narrative really diluted because you can't cram that much pov in 30k and get a legitimately good story out of it i'm not saying you couldn't do it i'm just saying it wouldn't be great it would lose power it would lose intimacy and Julie's right, it would dilute your narrative. Um, it will come off um, trite and it will come off um, insert A, you know, A into B and into C. And we're done. The end by. Because you think 30K is a lot, but it really isn't if you're trying to cram three POVs in it. Now you can wham bam thank your and 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 thank your reader, but you have to ask yourself, what kind of story do you want to tell? Right. And we've got, we're talking novellas 30 to 35K at the upper end. At the lower end, it's more like 20. Mm -hmm. So how are you going to slam three points of view into 20K? And the thing is, you may only have that much story. So let's say you've written a story, you've plotted a story that is a 20,000 word story, and you're going to dilute that with three points of view. I would just say one is better in a novella. For the romance. Now, if you're doing not doing a triad, can you do two points of view and 20 or 30,000 words? Sure. Now, I most of the time with 20 to 30,000 words, if my characters are mostly in the same place, I'm more likely to do two points of view. Um, I'm sorry, one point of view. Sorry, one point of view if they're in the same place. The reason I would do two is if they're separated through most of the story. Because Otherwise, you're playing a lot of catch-up on your second character. Um, but it's just worth considering. You know, you're going to sit down, you're going to decide. Because deciding whose point of view your story is going to be in is 
part of this whole setup. Um, so who are your main characters? Whose point of view are you telling the story from? Are you going to tell it from all of your main characters' point of view? Is it going to be one of them? Are they going to be the lens that the story is told through? And then that informs some of your plot decisions, right? So those are all choices you have to make. And then you need to think about when it comes to secondary characters, secondary characters, um, they're, they're, the, they're your supporting roles. Uh, they, they, they have a narrower function than the primary characters, but they're still important to the story. They're all named. You wouldn't have an unnamed secondary character unless like it was the antagonist and you didn't know who the killer was until the end or something. But generally, you know, your characters, they have names. Well, your character doesn't know who the killer is, but you should. You should. Yes. But, you know, they all have names. They all you should know where they're when they're when they're born, where they were born, where they're from, you know. Just you should know the basics about your secondary characters. And sometimes when you've got, if I say you're writing a Criminal Minds novella, okay, you'd be better served to pick from that cast who your main one or two people are going to be. And then let the rest of them develop your story so the rest of them are secondary characters. Just because it's hard in a novella to maintain six or seven primary characters. It's I'm going to share with you um, a character profile that I made today um, from my from my space series, um, which is currently called Space Orgy, but it's not actually going to be called that. That's just currently what it's called because I can't think of anything else right now to call it. But um, oh, it, it let me do the whole thing in one little paste. Um, and I have um. I've got his name, his his age, his gender, his hair color, his eye color, um, his ethnicity, um, his species, because I am writing a space one, but it isn't that spacey, so they're they're all they'll all be human. Um, um, his occupation, his temperament, um, how he likes to dress, where he's going, and then I also have his GMC on here so that I know um, going into my story what he wants, what his desires are. Um, and the more I know about him, the better able I am to move him through scenes. Like I know how he's going to respond to a crude joke. I know how he's going to respond to someone being um, mean. I just, I just know how he's going to respond to various events. Um, and this is just a small profile. My bigger one is written down in a notebook, um, which I didn't feel like transcribing all the way through. Um, but knowing all these things that I do know about him will make it easier to, when I get to the point where I'm plotting my little story, my little novella, um, I'll have my plot points and I will know how Ren is going to respond to each and every um, event that I have in my plot. Last summer, when we did the Real End Challenge, I challenged myself to write in a single PO because I hated it and I wanted to kind of you know make myself more comfortable with it and I did write in a single POV for both of my challenges it was Michael Bian all day long <laughs> and it was really interesting um writing these two very different men um because Kyle is um 
war hard and war weary. He's tired. He's disillusioned. He's determined, but he's in, but he's also just deeply overwhelmed. Whereas Hicks is mostly irritated that he slept through the kick-ass. <laughs> and he's like, I can't fucking believe I slept through it. <laughs> you know, she's really hot. <laughs> I'm getting some of that. I'm keeping them both. You know, and so he's got a mission. You know, a mission. And Reese um, went back in time with a mission and got a family. And so um, they both ended up with families, but it was a very different road for them. So writing those two different stories was, was a lot of fun. And staying in just their POV was, was difficult. I mean, really difficult because it's really hard not to just dig into Ellen Ripley's POV. Cause it, but, it, but if I had, um, um, it, it would have been 50K. So I had to rein myself in. And discipline um, when it comes to a novella structure um, or word economics, I hammer on all the time. But that's the the novella is a lost is is fast becoming a lost art form in a, um in the modern fiction market, and it is it is a hard road to walk to keep it all contained and to tell a short, tight, concise story. And to actually tell a whole story. Okay, so um, somebody asked in the Ask a Question, um, how do you determine the more minute details for a character? I would guess you base most of it off canon wherever possible. But what about where canon has Saturn-shaped holes? Do you just make best guesses or go with what serves your story? Um, I actually think in general, most of the canons I write in um, actually, I have to do more fill in the blank than I get from canon because uh, either canon's inconsistent um, or they just don't give you anything. Because I would say, like, especially like in the MCU, where, where it isn't inconsistent, they just don't give you anything. It's just, there's just a shocking lack of background. Um, and as, far, as far as guesses go, um, I don't try to make best guesses because the thing about trying to guess a creator's intention is it's kind of doomed to fail when it comes to filling out, like fleshing out a canon character. I would try to fill in the blanks kind of deliberately with what worked about the character that I liked. So using Denozo as an example, um, we have a lot of he's portrayed character from a characterization perspective, wildly inconsistent. It's not that we get, have a lot of inconsistency in his background, although there is some of that too, but in terms of how he's depicted on screen, it's all over the place. You know, he can be an idiot or he can be hyper competent and confident. Um, he can go from one episode where he's acting like an insecure clown to another episode where he is a complete badass. So it's, that lack of consistency makes when I go to fill in the gaps for him in terms of his character bio, trying to make a best guess based upon what the creator's intentions were for him is just doomed because 
which interpretation do I look at? The idiot? No, I don't want to do that. So I look at the aspects of his character that I like and what speaks to me. And then I fill in the blanks in a way that's internally consistent. Like this is what, this is how the things that I like about him would have come to be. Now, I might also make some decisions that serve my plot, but when it comes to making a, like fleshing out a canon character, as opposed to creating an original character, you have to be careful about doing stuff that just serves your plot that isn't in any way internally consistent for them because it will come off as contrived. You did that. Or impossible. Yeah, or impossible. You don't want to give the vibe um, that you gave them this just as a con just as a contrived thing for your story. So, I mean, I don't mean to pick on NCIS writers, um, fanfic writers, but there are instances where you see Tony like moonlighting as a doctor. Come on now. Becoming a doctor is no joke. How could he possibly have accomplished that? There's a few, actually, where he's a doctor. You mean specific examples of where it comes across as contrived? Well, that is a very good example, actually. Is it like you flesh, <laughs> out, his, as a doctor. <laughs> you flesh out his character bio and in such a way that you had him somehow have time to have done medical school while he was doing all of his other police department stuff. I mean, is he a lot older than in canon? Um, and so that feels like you filled in some gaps in his background in a way that is just kind of ridiculously contrived. Um, <laughs> other example might be... I think I, I think Edie needs to go in the sin bin for that. <laughs> the unaccounted four years. And time travel. Yeah, he, he, he would need the unaccounted four years and a time turner to accomplish medical school in four years. But they also don't have, the other issue is they don't change the canon events, right? Gibbs is still an asshole who works Tony 70, 80 hours a week, and he still manages to go and work at a hospital on the weekends. That doesn't make any sense. So, <laughs> But then there are others. Um, suddenly, um, Tony's showing up with um, several advanced degrees. You can say that he's managed to get um, a master's and a PhD um, over the years, like, you know, even, you know, and just doing correspondence work and doing classes online or whatever, as he has time, um, maybe spending a couple years writing his dissertation, if he could get somebody to work with him. But to say he has four or five of them, like he's Spencer Reed or something is a little ridiculous. Yeah. And it always comes up, right. It is never comes up earlier in the story until he wants to stick it in Ziva and Tim's face. It's like, that's <laughs> what I mean about really contrived. It's like, it feels like that scene, this come to Jesus scene that exists in the story, that all that that's the only function that this education serves is so that this scene can exist. Um, I wouldn't give a character a bunch of degrees, a bunch of degrees that they weren't doing something with. It seems useless. Counterproductive. And what does it say about his character that he's got, that he's that bright, that he can do with that little sleep, that he's earned all of these advanced degrees, and he's content to, what, be Gibbs second in command forever? <laughs> what a shocking lack of ambition.
I don't do any guessing either. I I try to make very concise choices in my characterization if something's missing from canon or if I'm writing an, an original character. And more often than not, my plot is shaped around my characterization because I'm a character-driven writer. And so if there's an event in my plot um, that, as I'm writing, doesn't serve my characterization, it gets removed. I don't reshape my character to fit my plot. Um, prime example, in Unleash Your Demons, I had an entire subplot that I removed involving Obadiah Stane, where Nebula goes and kills him. But as I was approaching that particular subplot, um, I realized that while that would have been to me, and obviously to several of the readers in the chat room, it did not serve her character. Nebula was growing and changing and getting really comfortable in her life on Earth. And yes, she does take out the other Winter Soldiers, but that's that was genuinely a public service. At the point that I would have had her kill Obadiah Stane, he hadn't yet done anything to deserve it. Bond just be a, just a little jackass. He hadn't tried to kill Tony yet. Um, he wasn't even working at SI anymore. Um, but I had this whole subplot where he was trying to get back in and um, uh, Friday recognized him as a threat and they were like, okay, well, I'll just go take care of that. And she does. And it, But it just did not fit her anymore it fit the nebula that was thanos's daughter but it did not fit nebula collins stark and so i took it out i took the whole thing out because it no longer served my character it would have been an immense disservice to her and her growth as as a person and that's why you have to be careful, like when you decide to make choices about your character so that you make them internally consistent, that they're well-rounded, and that, that the background you've given them makes sense for the role that you've had them play. It's like if you're not going to change canon, if you're not going to change canon events at all, you have to be careful about hyping up Tony's backstory too much, right? You gotta be careful what you do with that, unless there's a really, really good reason. You have a really, really good reason that he didn't do something with like all this advanced education. And here's the here's the gotcha about that. Let's say you do come up with a really, really, really good reason, but that really, really good reason doesn't fit in the story you wrote, then it is still contrived. Because if all that comes out if it's incidental to the story, why is it there, right? So you've done this thing. You you've want to give Tony all this education. It doesn't serve your serve a function in your story, except for maybe to make your id happy so you can shove it in McGee's face. But you've given him all this education that he doesn't do anything with. And it is... Um, what's a good example? Yes, I'll come to that in a second. Um, if it does, he doesn't do anything with it. And if you've got a really good reason why he doesn't do anything with it, but that whole dialogue and his education serves no function in your story. Why did you create that backstory for him? And yes, vicious is an example. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, <laughs> she's trolling me. Um, 
Vicious is an example of where I gave Tony a lot of advanced education, but he's doing something with it. Because <laughs> it changed, I changed his, I changed his background. Um, and you also change how he meets Gibbs, the circumstances, but how that happens, and um, it's an immense change. I mean, just Tony, he's a different animal. <laughs> But in in neither one of those situations is he viscous. <laughs> they haven't bonded yet, so no. <laughs> <laughs> you cracked me up, Edie. I was like, what the what the hell is viscous? <laughs> I was having a deep disconnect. <laughs> um yeah, that is that's correct. But so that's the case of where I changed. I took the character Tony. So in that case, what I did is most stories I can take the same basic profile for Tony that I ever have written and do some tweaks here or there, right? And basically use the same profile. I don't have to change much. That story I had to reinvent him because I could take him the same up until he joined his first police force, the first one, and he practically was barely on the job when he took two bullets in the hip. Um, so, and then that set him on a different course in his life because I needed, I wanted to write, and I decided I want to write Tony that's a little bit harder and a Gibbs that's a little softer. How do I, how do I achieve that? And I gave Tony a significant physical obstacle to overcome that he had to endure and persevere through. Um, earlier in his life and that he has pursued, had to go into a different career that he lost the career path twice. Think about it, twice. He planned to go pro sports. He lost that. He immediately turns around. He recovers from that, turns around, goes to become a cop, gets shot twice, loses. He doesn't even sure he's ever going to walk again without aid. So twice that's, that's two big hits on the career front really close together. And that's going to make him, emotionally a little harder than the way he was in canon so gibbs i'm like okay well how do I, gibbs is actually a lot easier to soften than it was actually to make tony harder all i had to do is have his family survive which was actually pretty easy to do if gibbs is a sentinel and he happened to be there you know so i just had gibbs come online a little bit early before they their death and be in the car with them um and be able to prevent the shooting that took the car out so but Tony, it was a complete reimagining of him and the way his life had gone and what his personality was like. So I was able to use his backstory up through the end of college, basically. But then I had to um, had to make sure all that stuff I was putting in served a function for the story, and it all did. It would be like what would be weird is like let's say that you know in that story, and it comes out just randomly. Oh, and you know. He's a wizard. <laughs> You're a wizard, Tony. Um, and it's perfect <laughs> function in the story. You're like, why? Why is he a wizard? Um, I'm going to assume because someone gave you a funky brownie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I live where that's legal, but not when I wrote that story. <laughs> um. But part of what one of the things, though, is if you're going to make him a wizard, it well, you obviously would need to serve a function in the story. But let's say I made him a wizard for no purpose in that universe, but that so he could deal with one bad guy. You know, and he he and and the wizardry thing 
is not come up in any other fashion in the story outside of this one scene so that he can be a badass. That's what I mean. It'd be just ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, obviously you guys wouldn't actually get to read that because, you know, I would be like calling her house. So let's go over your medications. Have you taken anything new? Do you have any new allergies? Because what the fuck, Jillian? What the actual fuck? Yes, what the actual fuck? Call your doctor. <laughs> Something is clearly wrong. <laughs> have you hit yourself in the head again? <laughs> we do not have time for another traumatic brain injury. Right? No kidding. Um, so it's just something to bear. When you think about what, what, to some degree, your characters do need to serve the story you're telling. But it's a, it, it, there is a balancing act there, right? <laughs> it's like, so if I'm going to reimagine his life from a certain point on, it's to, the, it's to further this one particular story idea. That said, once I've put together a consistent narrative for him that makes sense to me, then that story, once I've done that, right? So this is the character that I'm going to put in this, this, this story, right? I've changed him to be in this story from that point once that piece is done once that engagement happens and i start writing the plot has to bend before i bend the character because that character for me has to be solid i have to be able to count on that character being um i have to i just need to know i need to know what i'm going to write is this character going to react badly to this kind of situation or are they going to laugh it off um, is this par character going to get, is they going to think that, um, are they f f morally flexible or no? And that you just, if you don't have a character bio done, how will you know? And your character consistency is really super important. The thing is, is if I'd left that whole and nebula in Unleash Your Demons, it would have shifted her, her character arc. Um, in a very weird, she she would it it would have been a really deep psychological setback for her, right? Um, but removing that from the plot didn't hurt the plot. It didn't hurt the story, but leaving it in would have destroyed my momentum for her as a character. And sometimes you do something with a character that will throw your reader off, and they'll be like. What the fuck just happened? Why'd they do that? That's not what I expected. What am I supposed to do with this? How dare she kill Hedwig? Right? <laughs> Serve no fucking purpose whatsoever. I don't care what you say, Joanne. Um, so character consistency is, it is vital. Even honestly, even if you're a plot driven writer, your characters, whatever, for whatever function they serve in your story, they need to be consistent. And, you know, like you can't write your character, um, as a good guy and you're consistently writing them and you want the reader to believe that they're. I don't know, morally upright and ethical and just, just generally a good person. And they turn around and hit their lover. 
those things don't mesh at all. Just saying. I mean, that would be like me writing a McShep story and then in the middle of it, John cheats on Rodney. No. I mean, that would clearly be a call for help. I would have been, um, I've been kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I have that with, um, I, we talked about this on the podcast before, but um, I had that issue with character consistency or keeping my character in character. In um, when I wrote the React, that that's why it fizzled for as long as it did, is because I had made a plot choice. I had plotted for a pairing that didn't fit the Tony of that story, and I hit this point of where I had to make a choice of going with this romantic subplot that I had chosen, which was that he would be with Chris Argent, a, a season two, end of season two, Chris Argent, or not right and i could not the tony of that story i was banging my head against the wall because i was like he can't he can't get involved with chris argent he thinks chris is an asshole and he thinks well, chris, he's a criminal a criminal asshole criminal he, he is both actually <laughs> noah's not wrong <laughs> right so i mean he can't it's just Tony could not bang Chris in that story. It just wasn't going to happen. It was not going to happen. It really frustrated me at the time. And I felt like I totally screwed up my plot. And that's why I just got disenchanted with the whole thing and put it aside. And then when I went and read it later, I was like, like literally years later, I went, why don't I just pick a new pairing? Which just didn't occur to me at the time because I was so upset that I had, you know, botched my plotting that badly that I hadn't seen that it would, wouldn't make any sense for the Tony of that universe to be having sex with somebody he's and, and pursuing a romantic relationship with somebody he perceives to be a criminal. Cause Tony's doing in that uni universe, he's doing what he has to do in terms of letting Chris and Allison off the hook, but he really would like to put them both in jail. That's what he wants to do. So I was just felt so off that I didn't know what to do with myself. And when I went back and read it later, I was like, this is actually a really easy fix because I have every, because every single time the opportunity came for Tony and Chris to flirt, I didn't write it because it felt weird. So when I went back and reread it, there was nothing to even change because I had chosen every single time to keep Tony in character. Well, even when you weren't doing it on purpose, your, your inner writer was, was keeping your character consistent. Because I will choose character consistency over my plot every time. Now, sometimes I've gotten in trouble of where I've I've crafted a character that I actually don't like for that story. I'm like, mm, I shouldn't have chosen this plot for this character because I'm writing the character consistent, but it's turning out way angstier, way angstier than I want. I mean, there there are certain characters you don't want to be put in a situation where, like, I would not write Rodney McKay stranded somewhere by himself. We saw what happens. He goes psycho. And I'm not going to write 90K of M McKay stuck on a desert island by himself. Not going to do it. He wouldn't make a Wilson. He would go nuts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> John would make a Wilson. 
but there are certain characters you don't put in certain places, and that's um, that comes down to characterization. It comes down to um, uh, plot mechanics um, and the kind of story that you're trying to tell, um, and all that, all that fun stuff. Yeah. So generally, you craft a character. To me, the way I do it, I craft the character. I, I have an idea of the story I want to tell. And I will tweak a character to suit the plot, but the it's more important to me that the character be internally consistent. And what happens is if you if you tweak them in a way that doesn't fit their fit them and it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb just to make it fit in your plot, you've gone, you need to go further back. You need to take the character apart more and put them back together again. Cause you can't just put this, you know, for instance, one of my, one of my classic examples is if Tony has had a several loving supportive relationships, his entire life, really good friends who love and support him. I don't see how Canon happens. I just don't get it because I think that one of the reasons why he got in as deep with the dysfunction on the team as he did is because he didn't have enough close ties outside of. And a lot of times you need an outside source to tell you when something's toxic. Right. So I think that, and I don't mean like just like maybe one person he's kind of, he's good friends with, but they're, they're really distant from each other. Like they live on opposite sides of the country. They never see each other. That's a little different. But if he's got people he's really close to that he sees all the time, I don't see how he lasts 10, you know, five, 10 years at NCIS. It doesn't make, doesn't make any sense. Um, so if you're going to put in a detail like that and then have him be at NCIS for 12 years, I don't, I, that's where I start to say it's something like that feels contrived to me. Now, could he have a couple of close friends and stay at NCIS for four years? Yeah, probably. But his friends somewhere around season two, which would be after three years, three and a half years of NCIS, somewhere in there, somebody who's close to him who loves him is going to go, I think that your work is not good for you. But I felt like that the emotional codependence I saw and the dysfunction I saw was a function of people who didn't have solid relationships outside of work. You could write a completely different trajectory for him at NCIS, like, you know, that he's in a completely different function. Um, but if I have, have Cannon play out exactly the same when he's got really close people who really support him and care about him his whole life? Yeah, I don't see it. it that's what I mean about it feeling contrived. So you have to if you need a Tony who has got, you got some, you might have to make a choice, right? If you need it, if you want Tony to have really close personal ties outside of work, but you want Canon to happen, I don't, that's a difficult ask in my opinion. So either you change the trajectory of Canon or you bring those relationships into his life at a pivotal point that then makes him think about it, the way things are at NCIS. I think you can have a supported, uh, successful Tony Dinozo at NCIS, but not on Gibbs's team. Right. Yeah, I think he absolutely could have gone. I mean, we we plotted one story where he. Um... Yeah, unless you change Gibbs. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he, we we you and I plotted something. I don't think it was on the podcast where he was only ever on Gibbs' team for any length of time as a favorite of Morrow. That Morrow recruited him. 
to NCIS and that he asked him and that he did Tony never put up with Gibbs shenanigans because he didn't have to. Wasn't that one one where we plotted actually that he was Gibbs's partner until Gibbs got a team and then Tony got his own team? Or is that something I wrote down? We talked to that's I think that's two different things. Because the one the one I just was thinking about was the was the ties that bind thing. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, someone in the chat room said not only that, if he had outside the side support, the first time Gibbs hit him, that friend would have been all no. Well, that would be if he actually told that friend that he let his boss smack him in the back of the head without re a repercussion. Because honestly, I think most men would not reveal that to someone out of embarrassment. Especially a friend whose opinion they valued. Because really to be smacked in the head is um it's demeaning, it's humiliating, it's degrading, yeah. Yeah. There's I can't remember the name of the story. I can't remember the author. Somebody will refresh my memory, but there's an NCIS story where Tony gets involved with Jack O'Neill. It's kind of later series. I don't remember exactly where. I I want to say sometime in Sometime I want to say it's late Shepherd, early Vance, but I could be wrong. Anyway, so Tony and Jack get involved. Tony's already deep in the dysfunction with the team. And but he develops this really healthy relationship with Jack. And one of the things I thought the author explored really well was that Jack hates the dynamic between Gibbs and Tony. He hates it. And the more Tony talks about this stuff as if it's okay, because he does, he talks about it like it's all right, the more Jack hates Gibbs. And he hates Tony being on the team. But Tony is super defensive about the team dynamic and about his relationships as such as it is with Gibbs. And it's almost like a, a no-fly zone between them. They just can't talk about it because um, if Jack says anything, Tony's going to get mad. And it was really well explored because it showed things changing for Tony and showed the path of somebody who's enmeshed in an unhealthy relationship, whether it's, a, whether it's a personal relationship or a work relationship, an unhealthy relationship that you've allowed to go on can be hard to let go of, to break away from it. And it showed him, they do wind up with a dog. Yeah. But I think that was a really minor point in the story, but they do have a dog. It, Jack winds up keeping the dog because Tony can't. Um, it's the one where um, Tony inadvertently stumbles on one of one of the cases that touches the SGC. And when he realizes that it's a case connected to Jack, he disobeys Gibbs to call Jack in to come take care of it. And Gibbs is furious with him. No, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's called a chance meeting by Mythic Rivon. Rivon, I don't know, whatever, something like that. Thank you, Jaylar. Anyway, it's really well done. It's showing that the dysfunctional stuff that happened in canon is still there. And it shows, without beating you over the head with the progression, really, about how his relationship with Jack, it, it actually is one of the best examples of showing what a good, healthy relationship for Tony outside of work, how it would eventually change things for him. Um so it, it's just it's it's really well, it's really good character craft. Um so that's something you have to like consider when you're when you're giving your character a um, 
and you have a character like Tony who is, has a dysfunctional work relationship, if you're going to be changing up things for him outside, where like he's got all these great hobbies and really close friends, and he's continuing his education, da 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 da, and it's like, well, how come Canon has remained un, 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 unaltered? And I think people are scared of altering Canon up to their point of their divergence, and you just, you know, just throw it in the wood chipper. Move It'll on. be okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay to have had him leave the team after Kate died and be working for Balboa or have his own team. You can do that. And it honestly would re resonate better that he's got all these great relationships. Of, unless what you really want is to write that confrontation, in which case, write it in season three. You know? Make it happen right after Ziva joins the team. Um, okay, so that's... We talked talk a little bit about consistency of characterization kind of bit about consistency of characterization and how to you got to walk that that line between you know having the character that suits your plot but also more importantly that your character be internally consistent so you know if you want to and that your character demonstrate growth throughout the work right NCIS loves a bull, bullpen confrontation, and they also love to throw that stapler. And it's just that's not the way that works. You know, it's just so if you throw a stapler, you end up in anger management if you're lucky, and you, you get arrested if you're if you're not lucky. You're not. You just can't have a tantrum at work and get away with it, and you most certainly cannot do it if you. He it's loses, not realistic. He, he loses badge. Honestly, he's he, honestly. It's just anyway. Um, so you need a character. You need to craft a character that. So you you come up with your idea, right? You got your idea. The main characters you have for that story, when you do their bios, they need to be characters that that will work in that plot. But they also need to be complete whole characters who are internally consistent. So if you've written up a complete whole character that's internally consistent and they don't fit the needs of your plot, either your plot's got to bend or you got to go back and rework that character. And that's where we say you can't just put things in to suit the needs of the plot because that's where the character might not resonate as, well, why would an ethical law enforcement person who supposedly... Why would they let somebody get away with murder? That doesn't make any sense. Gibbs, anybody? Gibbs is the biggest but jumble of contradictions. They put this, they put all these things in. And this is canon. They put things in his character bio, basically, that are for the purposes of some, you know, dramatic moment where he lets Mike Franks get away with murder. That's I mean, truth, justice in the American way, unless you're Gibbs, Mike Franks, or somebody that Gibbs is related to through marriage. Right? So if you want if you want to write your character as being, you know, ethical and respecting the law, you don't don't then have a plot where they kill somebody in cold blood. It just doesn't work. So that's what we're talking about not putting things into your character bio that come across as contrived to fit the needs of the plot. Um, okay. So we talked about 
primary characters, secondary characters. That whole primary secondary character thing is a little bit of a it's a rough one. The where the line is between primary and secondary. But ultimately it's it's probably also not that important. You get a better feel as you write for what constitutes a primary character and what constitutes secondary. But all primary and secondary characters should be named and have at least some level of bio in general. Because secondary characters are usually in more than one scene um, or they play a significant role in the narrative. Um, and so they need to be as internally consistent as your primary characters do. Tertiary characters often don't have a name at all in the narrative. Unless it just would be awkward not to give them one. Like if Tony's going in and out of his apartment building every day and there's a doorman, there isn't. But if there was, it would be weird and inconsistent for his character for him not to know the first name of the doorman. Right. And let's say, let's say you've got a doctor who is visiting your character repeatedly in the, the same doctor all the time. If the doctor is never doing anything besides giving information to the character, they're only they're not stepping outside their capacity, right? As a doctor, they're probably a tertiary character. But it would still be weird to never disclose that doctor's name. You know, Doctor, whatever. You know, Doctor Bob. <laughs> doctor Bob came in for the morning checkup and did this and this and this and this. Yeah, he he's named, but you don't need a character bio on Doctor Bob. Um. Okay. But do write his name down so you don't forget it. And then suddenly there are four different doctors doing the same damn thing. Right. And don't write another doctor when, don't write Dr. Dick when Dr. Bob will do. Unless you forgot that you named him Bob because you didn't write it down. <laughs> then you've got Dr. Bob and Dr. Dick and you thought you only had one doctor. And also it's a good time to mention that you need to know what your doctors are doing because, um, Brad Pitt is a, uh, what's it, specialist. He's a infectious infectious disease specialist. So he would not be the doctor that Tony saw regularly um, for health checkups. No. He certainly would be seeing a pulmono pul pulmonologist. pulmonary pulmonologist. pulmonologist. Yeah. Regularly for his lungs if there was issues. I see. But he would I see not be seeing Brad Pitt. I see Pitt written as a pulmonologist so often, so often. It's like, he's not a pulmonologist. Stop it. They wouldn't have grabbed some random pulmonologist and said, we've got two people exposed to an unknown pathogen. Sit on them for a while. <laughs> it just doesn't but make sense. He might see Brad Pitt occasionally, like maybe once a year, so that he could look and see how you know his body is responding Um to healing from the infectious disease that he was exposed to um, because I imagine that Tony is uh, a case study. Oh, absolutely. And the reality is, is that there's, there's, there's many cases of bubonic plague um, every year still. It is not a, an eradicated disease by any stretch of the imagination. Um, pneumonic plague? No. And pneumonic plague without antibiotics? Absolutely none. So the fact that it's actually ridiculous that he survived that, but the fact that he survived would mean that, that they would be following him. And if Brad wrote the, uh, like a, uh, wrote, wrote a, a study on him for a peer journal or something, he would probably follow Tony periodically to see the progression. But 
Yeah, but he wouldn't be just, you know, he wouldn't be going in three or four times a year to get his lungs checked with Brad. That doesn't make any sense. But I, it always makes me laugh really hard when, when, when Brad Pitt shows up as his regular doctor. Yeah. Like sometimes um, as his GP. And I'm like, come on now. Stop it. The infectious disease specialists don't treat tennis elbow. Stop it. Um, but there's, you know, the other thing is that the show is a little bit off when the show, because I said on another podcast at one point about the, um, about Tony wouldn't have survived, something about that statistic. And they said that in the show, they said that 85% of people in times past, um, 15% was the survival rate. For bubonic plague, that's true. People didn't survive pneumonic plague. Um, so yeah, the show got that really wrong. <laughs> really wrong huh it's interesting twy look at the specifics but um twy was just saying that she, uh, somebody in her family was in a study um a medical study in college and um it's like pushing 20 years later and they still check on her kira i'm here okay I'm you thinking okay so somebody asked a question about gmc as it relates to We'll come back to Caleb. We'll probably have more to talk about. We'll definitely talk more about character as we talk about GMC. But um, somebody asked a question about when writing the first character profile, would the GMC then change per story or have a base type that could go to any story? GMC is very specific to that story. Um, because while you can have a character's motivations and internal conflict, um, and even their goals to a degree can be somewhat attached to the character. They should shift. They because sh internal stuff is informed by external factors. So when you change this character's environment, when you change what's going on in the story, when you change their circumstances, they have different external stressors, and those external stressors affect how they their internal conflict, their internal motivation, and potentially their goals. Now, some characters, there's a difference between the stuff that's situational and the stuff that is like rooted in their childhood. So some stuff, some some of that GMC stuff will be attached to your character bio. But other things are very attached to the situation. And your external GMC is very specific to the So you can't just set up GMC and then move into story. It is, it is. Unless you want to tell the same damn story over and over and over and over again. In which case, you know. And some people do. <laughs> you do you, but we hope it gets better every time. <laughs> um, so let's, let's take it apart. Should we take it apart and talk about the difference between the goals, motivation, and conflict? And um, since we start off character, when we talk about character, the, the character GMC as opposed to internal GMC. For me, I need to know what my character wants and needs, and they are different. I need to know what stands in their way, what internal conflicts stand in their way, and what what external conflicts stand in their way what is motivating them is it a healthy motivation 
Because that's not always the case. Because we're humans and we do fucked up shit for fucked up reasons. And your characters should be the same way. Um, I try to be very honest about my character's motivations. Really. Um, because it's important to be honest about your character. Because uh, that leads yourself to... Um, that leads you onto a path to creating a genuine 3D person fictional person so to speak um so some things when you look at what um gmc is very it's very entrenched it's very difficult to decouple the three right um your characters sorry i didn't quite catch that could you please repeat it shut up siri (laughs) yes quiet you heifer (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what I said that set her off, but whatever. Um, when you can't, you can't just decouple GMC. So what I mean by that is conflict characters, the, the, what characters internally conflicted about can really feed into um, their motivation. What motivates them, right? Motivation directly informs your goals, right? Um so, and of course, those are going to change between stories. Like, if you have a character, um, say, if we have John Shepard in a character, in a, in a, and he's on Atlantis, um, he's doing his best to keep his position, um, because he feels like, um, he needs to protect the city, he needs to protect the Athosians, he needs to protect McKay because McKay can't be trusted. And then, okay, that that's one version of John Shepard, right? But what if you have a John Shepard who's a sentinel? That's a whole different animal. Huh. <laughs> Because <laughs> he has instinctual drives that this regular John Shepard does not have. And he has tools at his disposal that this regular John Shepard does not have. So just layering a sentinel on top of your character changes every, changes a great deal about them. It it can change their um their physical responses. It can change um, how they gather information, how they review intelligence, how they um, process information, how they make decisions, they're a threat. If you look at that scene in Sentinels of Atlantis when John woke up and, rec- and realized in, on some instinctual level that there was a wraith on the city. And he responds immediately by getting a knife and going to find that fucker, killing it. Because that's because he's a sentinel. Mm-hmm. But if regular John Shepard woke up, was told by the city that there was a wraith on this city, he would he would activate Marines, get a gun, you know, uh, not but, run out in his pajamas with nothing but a knife. <laughs> but he's not a sentinel, right? But a sentinel responds differently. So this is a fundamental thing that you that you've done to your character, that you've changed about your character. Now imagine making your character a shifter. Or magical, or um, beyond. Out, assuming they're not magical and canon. Now, or now, assuming you're not changing your character. Assuming you're not changing your characters into a major AU, where they're going to have been different from birth. But assuming you're moving your character from one contemporary setting to another that are very similar. Um. Things about are still going to be different, but some things might still be the same. So, for instance, I created an OC for Slytherin Black named Zaid Sar, 
And <laughs> there's board that drain. Right. So pretty. Um, <laughs> one of the things I mentioned, I, to, I mentioned earlier that one of the things I picked out for each character was their boggart. And I had to pick why that was their boggart. And in Zaid's case, it's a Nundu. And the reason his boggart is a Nundu is because um, he'd had to lead teams of wizards in Nundu hunts several times when he was becoming a war mage. And he was the leader. And he lost several people under his command in those Nundu hunts. And the reason why it is his boggart is not because he's afraid of a Nundu, but because his biggest fear is losing people he's responsible for. And that representation of that is a Nundu. And it's something he, so that piece, even if I moved him into a different story in the Harry Potter universe, that piece of his internal conflict that leads to his motivation to take care of the people under him and to not lose them is, it goes with him, right? That is, for me, a very fixed aspect of his personality. Even, in, even if I were to put him in a different story, that piece of his motivation sticks with him because it's part of how I conceived him was with that motivating him and with this goal that he would not lose the people under him if there was anything he could do to prevent it, which is why he puts himself often in the line of fire is because he just doesn't deal well with losing the people he's responsible for. So some things are really intrinsic to a character that you create. Now, when you have to, when you take that character and you make them a werewolf from birth, you really need to go back to the drawing board and reconceive that character. But assuming you're not doing something like that, where you're changing them from birth, you're just, you know. But what story you put them in, that particular motivation might never actually come up, right? But it's still a part of him. It's part of what motivates him. It's a question of does it have any tangible impact on that particular story? Um, <laughs> um, so your characters, things that happen externally, external conflict, feeds to, typically feeds to internal motivation and even potentially internal conflict. And then that leads to Internal conflict leads to internal motivation, which leads to often your character's goals. And sometimes there's not a real direct line because people are complicated. People are super complicated, which is why sometimes the things they do seem counterintuitive. You know, it's sort of like, you know, you're trying so hard to. So if you have a character who, um, like Tony, whose stated goal is to get justice for the members and their families of the Navy and the Marines. And that's his stated goal. Being loyal to Gibbs above everything seems counterintuitive to his goal, but people are complicated. And as Kira said, they also lie to themselves. I mean, how many times have you told yourself that you're fine when you're a hot fucking mess? I mean, you you just like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I can do this, I can get through this shift, it'll be okay. And on the inside, like deep inside, you're screaming. But you're like telling yourself this lie to get through your day. To get through the moment. And maybe you even start to believe it. Well, your character should be the same way. Because they are. 
And like your character can believe that what their goal is, is to protect people. But their actions actually say, may say something different. And that's because people are complicated. And it's because motivation should inform your goals, but sometimes you aren't being honest about that your goal is just to have this found family that you think is loyal to you, that you think and actually you desperately hope they're as loyal to you as you are to them. So it's important that you understand that kind of nuance because you should understand it about yourself. So you should be able to extrapolate what that looks like for a character that they're not always cut and dried, but that it generally, generally, you know, goals and motivation tend to be really tied together. It's just sometimes it's not quite that simple. Um, but anyway, and sometimes you need to tell yourself that lie to just get through that day and to get through that moment um, so you can get to a better place and have that emotional, you know, crying in the shower moment. Mm-hmm. You know, or go get stitches, whichever, whichever it was, because my I'm fine tend to be, but you're bleeding all over the floor. But I'm, I'm fine. fine. I'm fine. I'm, I got I'm a stressed fine. nosebleed. My blood pressure's through the roof. I'm fine. I'm fine. A queen. The narrator in the in uh, in your life is is saying she's not fine. <laughs> she is so not fine. As it would turn out, Kira was not fine. <laughs> and her foot was in fact broken (laughs) right so conflict internal conflict is we all we all should be able to understand what it's like to be internally conflicted um tony any of the tony one of my biggest internal conflicts in my life has been um sexual attraction (laughs) I'm just being frank. I mean, sometimes I mean, we talked about this before about being attracted to somebody that you hate. Yeah, yeah, that's really. And good. You're like, it's appalling because you hate them. Why do you want to ride their dick? <laughs> it's like, right? Because you're like, uh, I can't fucking stand you. You're I'm a terrible, bang you like a drum. <laughs> you're a terrible, terrible person. I, as a matter of fact, we're gonna have to get a hotel because I don't like you enough to let you in my house, but I really want to fuck you. That's some serious <laughs> conflict right there. Um and it's also you flicks too, like um you're in a relationship that's really comfortable, um, you're very content, you're very safe, but um it's not very emotionally fulfilling or it's not sexually fulfilling or um, you don't have a lot in common, but they're really comfortable and safe. I mean, I remember my, it's my first college boyfriend. I broke up with him um, eventually, but I should have broke up with him like eight months before I did. I mean, so we all have those moments. And sometimes internal conflict is very simple, right? It's like, I don't feel good. Actually, I really don't feel good when I have too many carbs. I actually feel terrible. But I still really like cheesecake. (laughs) And and that sounds like a ridiculous example, being conflicted over cheesecake. But actually, it, it can have really horrible ramifications, right? If you're diabetic and you eat a bunch of cheesecake. 
Although it'd be probably worse to eat a bunch, you know, cookies or something because these cheesecake has some fat to try to deal with that. But anyway, the point is, is that to some degree, we all have struggled with internal conflict. I, and it's not even a matter, when I talk about like food, it's not even a matter of I shouldn't have that. It's a matter of, I know I'm going to feel crap if I have that. And yet I'm thinking about eating it anyway. That's, that's internal conflict right there, <laughs> right? Because it should be like, I know I'm going to feel terrible if I eat that, but I want to eat it anyway. I'm going to eat it. <laughs> but sometimes internal conflict is more, um, it's more deep. It, it's, it's more intense than that. It's like, there's this terrible choice we see it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a trope right it is a trope it's sometimes explored in ways we can't stand of where the it's character has a catch 22 that it's going to be save this person and that person dies save that person and the other person dies that's a terrible terrible internal conflict right so conflict internal conflict Rain, it is all over the spectrum from I, I'm going to eat the cheesecake, even though I know I feel like going to feel like crap, to if I save my child, my husband's going to die. If I don't save my child, my husband will never forgive me. Right. So these kinds of conflict runs, internal conflict runs all over. And internal conflict then speaks to your character's motivation. You know? Why, what are they going to do about this conflict? And sometimes their, their motivation also comes from external conflict, right? You know, a bomb just went off in the city. Or a tsunami just wiped out half the island. Or whatever. Something major external happened. And it is motivating your character to do something. So internal motivation can come from either internal or external conflict. So, um, and then what I would caution you is, especially in the novella format, is don't go whole hog on both. You don't have room for that. And two, it's going to be a really anxious. If it's coming at your character from every single direction, you can't even breathe. I mean, if your character's boyfriend is trying to kill them uh, at the same time, there's a tornado warning and a hurricane off the off the uh, and and the building's on fire. Come on now, <laughs> take that boyfriend out <laughs> first thing. Right. So, and no zombies later. So motivation and the difference between motivation and goals. Motivation is kind of more why you act. And goals are what you say you're going to do. Goals are about doing and motivation is more about why. And as we said, sometimes those things are wildly incongruous on the surface. Um, okay, so I have, I'm going to read a little, little comparison between internal and external conflict. This is from, if I'm reading something significant, I'll try to make sure I... It's from a blog called Writers Inc. The blog is Shannon Curtis, and that's shannoncurtis.wordpress.com. And it says the difference between external and internal conflict. And that's all that this is about. This doesn't address anything else in GMC, really. It says internal conflict is the struggle that occurs within your character and is driven by your character, 
They have a want, need, or desire that arises from their experience, but in order to fulfill that want, need, or desire, they must first face and conquer this inner demon. This is where they confront their self-concept and either grow or fall. Internal conflict is emotional and it's psychological. This conflict is subjective. It belongs in the mind and heart of your subject, your character. External conflict is the struggle that occurs outside of your character. The external happenings that drive your character to act and react. In other words, external conflict is the plot. It's the stuff that happens that makes your character do something. This conflict is objective. It deals with things external to the mind and heart of your subject character for all to view. Simply put, internal conflict stems from your character's goal. External conflict stems from your story goal. I'll put the link to that particular blog post in the Bitchcraft resources if anybody wants to read more about that. So, um, so what I would say is that I let my idea shape my goals and motivations in conflict, and then I let my goals and motivations in conflict shape my event plot. Now, sometimes external conflict creates internal conflict. Um, so when Kira said, do one or the other. It's it, a novella. I mean, you have right. plenty of room in a but it can be novel both. to lose your mind. Right. It can be both when they're on the same path, when they're on the same trajectory. Um, so like if something happens externally, it creates conflict with your character internally, and then that drives them to act. That's all basically the same event, right? It's just having a it's it's having a trickle down kind of thing. It's when it's two completely separate, wildly different things in a novella where you've got this big external event and your character's got some, you know, big internal thing. Like I'm, I'll Kevin's gonna throw out like like they're dealing with alcoholism or something, and it's creating a big internal conflict for them. If you've got a big external conflict that is driving your story, and you've got this internal conflict of alcoholism, which is a big internal thing for a character to deal with. You might need something in like more of a novel setting to deal with that. Because that's two really competing forces, right? If you've got you let's also say also have some practicality going on. You don't want to mix like a natural disaster and alcoholism. Right. Because your character would be completely as they go through withdrawal for their alcoholism problem. You've given yourself realism for you there. Right. You give yourself <laughs> some hurdles. So it is just it's important to make sure that you don't overcomplicate the GMC in a novella. And honestly, try not to overcomplicate it even in a novel because typically a novel is bigger by virtue of more plot than because of a lot of internal angst. I mean, on the other hand, I have seen 150K of internal angst. It's just really boring. I, I don't really recommend it. Um, I mean, you do you, but don't expect me to be entertained by it. I'm just saying. The so goals are what your character is trying to get done. And the goal of the story is what the plot is trying to accomplish. Um, and the GNC of the story should not you shouldn't need to expressly state it whereas your character's gmc might actually come out on the page that makes sense that's to me 
because you shouldn't need to say, you shouldn't need to expressly state, you know, that, that the goal of the story, you know, where there's a natural disaster is to save as many as people as possible. Although you, sometimes you actually do wind up saying exactly that line. So that was a terrible example. We're going to save as many of people as possible or die trying. Okay. Thank you. Cliche dialogue. Um, Appreciate you. Not really. So to go back to the question that kind of got us going started, getting started down the path of the GMC, which was that, um, how's it phrased again? Um, could the GMC or have a base type that could go to any story? Like I said, some things about GMC as we, in the, with the examples we gave, will travel kind of a little bit with the character. And some things are also, they're kind of things you might repeat. Um, I see kind of tips, typically, typically in like a, some, a lot of Sentinel Guide stories, there's often um, like a recurring external conflict. But you just have to be careful that you're not getting super repetitive about that kind of thing. But generally, I would say the general thing is that you should be reevaluating GMC in every story you write, internal and external. Because even the pieces of the internal conflict and motivation that are that are part of your character bio, they're going to be affected by your external events. So that's why they need to be, at least be assessed. You can't just assume that you're going to be able to plug all that in for another story. else we need to say about GMC? Anybody have questions about GMC? If you have questions, feel free to ask. Uh, have, um, GMC that is rooted in your in your character's backstory that you need to address that going into if If you're moving your characters around from different works, um, that you may need to adjust their backstory um, if you have to uh, adjust their GMC. Um, for instance, um, if you wanted to adjust, um, I think one of Jack O'Neill's biggest conflicts um, is the death of his son. And I think that in order to, if you change that, then you have to change his backstory. Otherwise, you're making a fundamental character change to Jack O'Neill that makes absolutely no fucking sense. He's not going to get over the death of his son. No. You don't get over that. No. It changed him fundamentally. So if you're going to take that out as a conflict for him, as a part of his characterization, then it needs to not have ever happened. And then you have to address the issue of Charlie O'Neill and Jack O'Neill's marriage. Unless you want to say he's never been married at all. But I think that fundamentally changes Jack O'Neill in such a way that he would be practically an original character. One thing they never really address in SG-1 is um, the fact that Jack O'Neill was suicidal. Yeah, they just kind of wrote that out of the story. Yeah. Which, you know, I don't, I don't really blame them because it really didn't fit the tone of the show. But they didn't change his backstory. Yeah, honestly, they should have just kind of retcon things and said, hey, we're picking up the TV show or just taking these, some of these elements out of these characters because with the way they wrote the character, it would have been better to have retconned his backstory and not had that death. Does it wound up being a big disconnect? To yeah. keep that backstory and then make him so different to how he was in the movie. 
I don't think Sam Carter was of suicidal. I don't think Cameron Mitchell was suicidal. Actually, I don't think they were suicidal intentionally or otherwise. I think that some people just... Um... There's a big line between being reckless and heroic and suicidal. Well, there's there's a personality type, actually. I can't remember what, which type personality type it is that's called... It has a specific name. Where they... Adrenaline junkie is kind of... Might be kind of like the short term. But it's people who... Um, thrive on difficult circumstances basically not necessarily needing to climb mount effort everest and stuff but also it could also be cockiness there's a lot of reasons why somebody might feel overconfident about their ability to survive a situation that isn't like any kind of like latent suicidal tendencies or something so but i do think it was a career career requirement that they not be terrified of going on a mission and die, being afraid of dying, right? Because somebody who is terrified every time they walk through the gate would never have wound up on an SG team, really. So there's some level of arrogance or confidence that has to go along with people who go into... I think, I think you know, people that take on those kinds of missions, they have to believe on, on some level they're going to come back. Otherwise, so there's, like, there's, a, there's a line between being willing to die and being ready to die. And that is a, an important distinction to have in your character. And it needs to be addressed that Jack O'Neill at uh, at one point in his life was very, very, very unconcerned about living. And he fully expected to die on the Abydos mission. That was part of his mandate, right? Um, was to to send the team back through and then blow that warhead with him on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> Dark says, no one ever climbed Everest thinking they would be one of the people who died there. Of course, 80% of people think they're above average, which says, <laughs> that's his right there, right? That reminds me of that line in Doom when Rock's character is about to die. And he looks right at the camera and says, I'm not supposed to die. Epic fourth wall break of all time. Yeah. Or that moment in Deep Blue Sea. Where Samuel L. Jackson's in the middle of his big ass heroic speech. And he gets eaten by a shark. <laughs> on DVD, we had to pause it because we were like, what the fuck just happened? We had to rewind it and watch it again because we were like, what just happened? <laughs> Unexpected consequences, I suppose you would say. just amazing but I don't think I mean sometimes I tend to write um, um, that tongue in cheek thing about John being suicidal I don't think John Shepard is suicidal I think he's reckless 
and not afraid to die. Yeah. And that isn't the same thing as suicidal. But I think Rodney sees it as suicidal because Rodney isn't reckless and Rodney is afraid to die. Yeah, I actually find it um, really off-putting when I read SGA stories where the characters who went on the SG mission um, went went to Atlantis, described their mission as a suicide mission. We went out there on this suicide mission and I'm like, hmm... I do see it as a potentially one-way mission, and I think that anybody that went on that mission who didn't think that was an idiot. Right, but one way is not the same thing as dying. So, um, well, statistically speaking, <laughs> I was like, "Wait, does my character have a name? I'm not gonna make it." You have a name, guy. Name? <laughs> then what is it? What is it? For all you know, I'm just crewman twenty-eight. <laughs> crewman number six. <laughs> Is it crewman number six? It was number six. Just crewman number six. <laughs> but, but no, but seriously, I do think that there were plenty of people on that mission who did consider it a suicide mission. And then there were those who considered it a one-way mission. And then there were those who hoped that they would live out there long enough for the SGC to come out there and find them. Well, but I don't believe the SGC sent them through without... The plan was always to send a ship after them, right? You oh, know, yeah. if, you guys, if you guys can't get back, we're going to send a ship out there. But they had to go through with the no knowledge of the possibility that they might die on the city before the ship could get there or not be able to get off the city. Or I don't think they conceived of being underwater. Um, Which what I think was an astronomical mistake considering the legend of, of, of Atlantis. Right. You think that some of them, I thought, well, you know what? I mean... It seems I like think it, Daniel Jackson has proved that sometimes legend, legend and myth have some fact into it, and since Atlantis exists, we might want to bring some scuba gear. <laughs> just in case. Just in case. Um, a little submarine. <laughs> Something. And it, when, when it comes to GMC, actually, when you think about the scientists who went on to, went to Atlantis, you have to know that their, that their desire... And this informs motivation. Their desire for scientific discovery clearly heavily outweighed how risk averse most of them were. Oh, surely. Because, and it tells, and so that speaks to actually for each person who went, it tells you that they're a dedicated scientist. Even if what they really needed were a lot of dedicated plumbers. Right? Um, <laughs> but you're not, probably not going to get a dedicated plumber to want to go on that trip. At least not in the first sir, wave. Sir, I've been reading the myths about Atlantis and we're fucked, sir. Can we get some seals? <laughs> um, I mean, Navy seals, but also probably some actual seals. <laughs> yeah, some actual seals. Um, so, GMC. Um, does anybody have questions before we ramble on to whatever the next thing is? I need to get off early, actually, because I have an early morning appointment for um, a blood draw. So, um, if we don't have any more questions, we might end the podcast, if you guys don't mind. Okay, so while you guys think about questions, let's give you your homework. Pick your characters. Um, your homework. Got, got your idea. You've got your theme. You got your, you know, you got your genre. Which, if you're writing fan fiction, you should also have your fandom and your pairing and whatever. You should have all that stuff noted. Um, 
So homework for the next part of the plotting would be at least mini bios for all your main characters. And if you've got a huge number of secondary characters, I don't know, don't do more than 10 character bios between now and tomorrow because you'll lose your mind. But if you've got a minimal number of secondary characters, you know, hit them all, mini bio them all. Take your butt over to a name generator if necessary. It's very beneficial. I prefer the fantasy one myself. It has a lot of different options. It gives you a whole bunch at once. You don't want one of those damn name, name generators that makes you fill out 3,000 fucking things and then gives you one name. <laughs> yeah. It's so Dark ass. <laughs> like, People know how many characters they need before they finish plotting. Um... I think you should at least know your main characters. You need if you're where this is a this is um plotting a novella. Let's let's say you have at least one main character, you might have two. Right. So for so for the idea that I put forward last time, just as an example, I know without plotting a thing, okay, I know I've got Tony and John are my main characters, and Patrick's edging into the close to main, but I'm having secondary characters. The other three shepherds are secondary characters, right? So I know that. They're going to be primarily on Atlantis, so secondary characters will also be that are important in this case, Rodney, Ronan, Taylor, um, Elizabeth, and Beck, Carson Beckett. So that, I believe, takes me to like 10 and those are the ones I can so, think of that will be important in terms of navigating around Atlantis, dealing with a few conflicts I kind of already have in mind, plus the family stuff and the people closest to the family. And that informs. So I've got two main characters. I know what they're, I know that they're working on a drilling platform that has 22 other people on it, 23 other people on it. Um, and they, I won't need to know all those people, but I will need to know, like, who's running it, like, who's the crew chief. Um, I need to know, um, I probably need to know at least one secondary character. Uh, so I might need three. Just, you know, I'm just trying to figure out. So I'm going to probably do their bios and two main. And then I'll make, and then after I do my plot document, I will go back in and create any other character profiles that I need. So you may discover a character you don't there may be a character you didn't think of until you actually start writing and that's fine. It's not a big deal. But the ones you can identify in advance you might as well go ahead and deal with their deal with them. Just get it out. Um and if you the thing is you'll start to you'll start to narrow the gap between what you know immediately that you need. And what you figure out later that you need, the more you do it. Okay, so for your also for your main characters at least, you need to understand their GMC. Motivates them. What are their stated goals? As a character, okay, as a character, with your idea in mind. And what it kind of conflict they've got. Now you could also, because you've got at least the, the rough, you know, you got your idea and you know what your thematic elements are. You should kind of also be able to figure out how the story GMC feeds into that is going to affect those characters. So at least for your main characters, I don't, I don't think it's probably all that worthwhile to spend a ton of time trying to figure out the GMC for your secondary characters. Although for some of them, it's going to be super obvious. But it also depends on how much impact your secondary characters have on your plot. Like, one of the biggest profiles I had for Patient Zero was Carson Beckett. 
Yeah, because sometimes like an antagonist or somebody who is a a pivotal pivotal who's dead when the story starts, right? Who's or somebody who's pivotal to the um the GMC of your main characters could have a you might have a big bio on them, but so like um I'm gonna need the GMC even though I have identified David, Matt, and Patrick as being secondary characters, I'm going to need the GMC on all of them and Rodney because he's John's primary love interest. So I, I need to, I need to work up on that on all of them. So I may not need it for every one of my secondary characters, but I'm going to probably do it anyway. Could be useful. It could, when you're doing this, it could um, make decisions for you when it comes to your plot. It's never wasted effort to know more about your characters, you know, because that way, if you've already got it locked in, when you get to the point in the story where you need that piece of information, you'll be able to make them appear more well-rounded and balanced and have more depth because you know about the character. So um, that's your homework. At least through the mini, the mini character bio, um, and at least for your mains. And if you feel like tackling your secondary characters, you know, you'll get bonus cookies. And here is the document again, in case you guys need it. Is that the one you filled out again? I don't think so. I think I cleaned it off. Yeah, it's the clean one. It's the clean one. I didn't miss any questions. That's what I get for not saving as. Right? I mean, I always save as. If she needs help. I mean, I didn't say AS. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and let Dark out of the sin bin. I don't know. We can put her back I in tomorrow. We just put her back in there permanently. I'm, I'm just thinking. Just thinking ahead. So this is the last call for questions. And then, and then Kira has to go to bed. She has to be good. And she has to go to bed. Yeah. It doesn't always work out in my favor, though. You know, having... Question marks don't count, Ellie. <laughs> the sin if... bin is the, is the timeout corner. Um, we changed it. Apparently, it apparently, Daisy said earlier, she said, is the penalty box like the, what, like the sin bin in rugby? And we were like, yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> we are changing the name. <laughs> we are changing the name. Oh. <sighs> Called, it's called the sin bin in hockey too I think officially it's called the penalty box but maybe it's called something else unofficially I mean let's do with myself I feel like I've 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 you know underestimated hockey all these years um although I shouldn't have because really anything that's got a penalty box is just kind of right up my alley um <laughs> Reality is good for you, Queenie. It is. It's really, truly. Um, so, okay. Back so, you. unless I missed, unless I missed a question, the bad box. Jeez. Um, okay. So, unless I missed a question, I don't think we had any pending questions, and everybody's got their homework. Um, and then what is, I forgot what's, what's coming up next, Kira. So we know if anybody has to do anything um, to prep. 
We're, we're creating the mini plot document tomorrow. Oh, the mini plot. So to do the mini plot, you really do need to get these other things done. So do your homework. The mini plot is formed through your and conflicts. This is the heart of your plot. And honestly, when it comes to novella, it's about all I do. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I don't need a zero draft for a novella. Some people do. It just it just depends on what you need as far as being a plotter goes. I hope um, that this was um, very beneficial and you guys learned a lot. And we will uh, be back tomorrow with... Um, how many days has this been? This is day three. We'll be on day four tomorrow. So I hope that um, you guys um, are ready for that. And we'll do the mini plot. Um, and I will post a um, mini plot in a text document probably tomorrow when I come back from doing my stuff. So, um, you guys have a very good evening. And we shall catch you later. Say goodnight, Julie.